Good morning. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited about our beginning our study in the book of Romans. And as uh, Chad just mentioned, I think, I think if I could say one quick goal about what, what I'd like us to uh, get out of this weeks, months, maybe year-long study in this, in this book is, is that we would meet God and that we would love God more. That we'd come out of it loving God more and that would uh, then propel us into all that God calls us to. As most of you know, uh, my wife, Christine, and I were missionaries in Thailand with a group called OMF, Overseas Missionary Fellowship, uh, formerly China Inland Mission, founded by Hudson Taylor in 1865, all this history. And part of joining OMF was attending a six-week candidate course. Well, we learned about OMF, and, and they learned about us. Uh, basically, they wanted to know, are you qualified to be missionaries? Are you the kind of people we want to send overseas? And near the end of the six weeks, we had what was called a final interview. And this was with the, the board of directors, the, the leaders of OMF. These are the people that would decide if we could join or not. We were a little bit nervous going into that interview. And it didn't help that the couple who went in before us, we were like lined up, the couple that went in before us, when they came out, they were in tears. Oh no, what's going to happen? We were were then called in, we were seated in front of the nine OMF board of directors. We weren't, we already knew three of them. Our, Our former pastor was one of them, David Doherty. Dr. Dan Bacon, who was president of OMF USA, OMF is international, he was the leader of the U.S. part, and a man called Dr. Johnny Miller, who was the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary, where we attended. So after we were introduced to the six others, they began to ask us questions. And, and to this day, I only remember one of the questions they asked. Someone asked me, uh, what was your favorite class in seminary? And I said, well, it's a toss-up between Dr. Bacon's class on the history of missions and Dr. Miller, they're both there, you see, Dr. Miller's class on the book of Romans. I said the history of missions class inspired me to be like those who've gone before us, who've given their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the class in Romans gave me a deeper and clearer understanding of that gospel what it means in my life, and what it means to proclaim it to the nations. Not a bad answer, if I do say so myself. And and when we left the interview, there were no tears. We We were good. Now today we begin our series in this same book, in the book of Romans. Today we begin a journey that I pray will lead us to a clearer and a deeper understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A message that applies to our lives, and a message that we're called to proclaim in our world. Today we begin a journey through what what many have called, uh, and I would agree, the greatest letter ever written. A letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, when we did, if you remember, if you were here, that overview of Romans chapter 1 through 8 in one week. I don't know how we did that, but anyway. Uh, Paul's purpose for writing this letter 
was to gain support from the church in Rome for his uh, mission to go on to Spain. He wanted to go to Spain. Spain needed the gospel. And he wanted the church in Rome to support him in that, in that mission. Paul had never been to Rome. He didn't know the Christians in Rome. And they didn't know him particularly well. So he writes this letter of introduction. Just like when Christina and I, for six weeks, introduced ourselves to OMF before they would send us to Thailand, Paul introduces himself uh, uh, by writing this letter to the church in Rome so that they would support him in his mission to Spain. And to say that Paul does a good job in writing this letter might be the greatest understatement understatement in all of uh, human history. You see, God had a far greater purpose for this letter. Paul's immediate purpose, I want to get to Spain. But God had a greater purpose. Romans has throughout church history uh, been a treasure for God's people. More than any other book in the Bible, I believe Romans gives uh, us the best understanding of our relationship to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would, as, as others have in the past, summarize the message of Romans in this way. It's in your notes there. Romans is the revelation of God's righteousness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that might sound, well, what does that mean? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about this week and in, in weeks to come. Romans answers this, this question. How can a holy God, how can a holy righteous God rightly be in relationship with an unrighteous, sinful people. How is that possible? And Roman answers. In fact, it shouts forth. It declares the answer. The answer is through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Through Christ's finished work on the cross. God's righteousness is seen. God's righteousness is given. God's righteousness is applied to the lives of those who trust in Christ. Romans also explains that for those who receive the righteousness of God comes, comes real uh, transformation, real change in their life. God, it's, there's power in the gospel. There's power in Christ entering your life and, and the Holy Spirit coming in. There's power. We become new creatures that live differently from the world. We're transformed by the power of God to live a, a new righteous life. And that's my prayer for us, that as we, as we dive into this, this amazing letter, that in our lives we'll see and we'll receive and we'll apply the righteousness of God revealed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that we'll grow in our, in our relationship with God, we'll grow in our love for God, and we'll be transformed by the power of His Spirit. So, are you ready to begin our journey through Romans. All right. Because if you're not, sorry, we're doing it anyway. We begin uh, this week, six verses. We're going to look at six verses. Probably the first five, six will probably, we'll probably go back to six and go next week, six, seven, and eight, maybe. Anyway, where Paul gives his, so this is an introductory letter. He's introducing himself to uh, the whole letter is sort of an introduction, but in these beginning verses is his initial introductions. He says, first, he, he introduces himself. Paul introduces himself in verse 1. Remember, the church in Rome had not met Paul. So he begins by identifying himself in three ways. Three, I mean, it's brief. It's one verse, but it's 
packed full of stuff. First one, he writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. First, we see Paul is a, a servant of Christ Jesus. He wants the Roman Christians to be clear about who he serves. He doesn't serve himself. He doesn't serve Peter or the other church leaders in Jerusalem. Paul is a servant of Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus is his Lord, his Master. He follows Christ's lead. He's going to Spain not because of uh, some great ambition of his own life, but because Christ is leading him there. His Master is calling him there. Everything he does is for Christ. And really, the same thing should be true for us, right? For all Christians. When we receive God's gift of salvation through Christ, we become servants of Christ. Paul wrote uh, these words to the believers in Corinth. He says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We are servants of Christ because He bought us by dying for us. And therefore, He owns us. He has authority over us. He's our Lord and Master. Not language we always like to hear. We like to think that, that we're the captain, captains of our own ship. We're the, we think we, 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 we control our own fate. We control our own destiny. We're in charge. But when we give our lives to Christ, when we receive His gift of salvation, He... Uh, What have we studied for the last year? The history of what? Redemption. He redeems us. He purchases us. He buys us back. He restores us with His blood. We're not our own. We're not our own. We become His servants. And therefore, we live for His purposes. Living to glorify God in our bodies. This is in many ways really the key to the Christian life, isn't it? To live the Christian life. Living in such a way that in all you say and you do and you think, we're seeking to serve and to glorify God. So first Paul introduces himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. Living for God's glory. And second, Paul is called to be an apostle. He wants the Roman believers to to understand that he's not a a self-made man. That that it wasn't his personal drive, his ambition, his hard work that made him into an apostle, a leader in the early church. He was called by God to be an apostle. Paul's uh, story, his testimony, makes this very clear, if you know it. He he didn't one day out out of brilliance, he was a smart guy, but it wasn't his brilliance. Or his humility. He wasn't a very humble guy, actually. It wasn't out of his brilliance and humility. He, he was looking at the evidence. And he figured it out. He figured out the truth. Oh yeah, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Him. I, I've got it. In Acts, 1, not, uh, in Acts chapter 9, we read Paul's story. Paul was on the road to Damascus. And he had in his possession letters giving him authority to arrest followers of Christ. He was in the midst of sinful, actful, sinful rebellion against God. But God, but God, and, and that's the key, uh, those are two important words in any uh, Christian's life, but God. But God broke into Paul's life and he called him. And the same is true for each and every one of us. 
If you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, Paul in verse 6 of chapter 1, he says to the believers in Rome, you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. We haven't been called uh, like Paul to be an apostle, but like the Christians in Rome, all believers are called to belong to Jesus Christ. We're not Christians because of our own brilliance or our own humility. It's because we're called by God. Jesus said, in fact, John 6.44, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws, calls Him. Like all believers, Paul was drawn to Christ by the Father. And Paul was called by God to be an apostle. And in this context, the, the apostles were the people who'd seen Jesus. They'd seen Jesus arisen from the dead. Therefore, they could give first-hand testimony. They could testify to the world. They could write down what they had seen. Therefore, they were the ones who were called and, and commissioned and authorized by Christ, inspired by Christ to represent Him and to speak for Him. Those were the apostles. They were, they were also the ones who would provide the foundation for the church through their, uh, through their teachings, inspired teachings and writings. In Acts 26, Paul reveals what Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus. Jesus said, For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen. Paul was called by God to be an apostle. And an apostle, a representative, a messenger of Jesus Christ. He by uh, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote the letter that follows. Romans is not the product of a great man, a great mind. It's the product of a great God working through a called man. A servant of Jesus Christ. Called to be apostle. And finally, Paul says, Paul, uh, I'm set apart for the Gospel. Paul was set apart. Uh, chosen by God for the Gospel. Paul's mission uh, which we'll talk about more in a few minutes, was to proclaim the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of God. What God did through Jesus Christ to bring salvation to humanity. That's the Gospel. The good news. And when Paul was set apart, excuse me, now when was Paul set apart? It's a question. You might say that, that when he was when he was confronted with Christ, when Christ came to him on that road to Damascus, that that's when Paul was set apart for the Gospel. But Paul says, if you look at Galatians chapter 1.15, he says, but when He who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by His grace. Paul was called by the grace of God, the, the free gift, the, the choosing of God, the grace of God that we can't explain he was called by God, by the grace of God, on the road to Damascus. But even before he was born, God set him apart for the gospel. See the hand of God working in Paul's life, which means that God was sovereign over Paul's entire life. God prepared Paul from his mother's womb to proclaim the gospel. And I believe this applies to us as well. From our mother's womb, God has set us apart. For His purposes. God is not surprised when we give our lives to Christ. When we become Christians. Because He's the one calling. He's the one drawing us to Himself. And once we, we answer His call, 
He then takes our past experiences, our skills, our knowledge, the things that maybe He's even been working into our lives, and He uses them for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. God is sovereign over our entire life. Each of our lives. Ask yourselves, even before I was a, a, a believer, even before I had given my life to Christ, how did God develop me for His purposes? What skills and, and talents and abilities did He give me that I might use for the Gospel? Skill and experience in business that I might give for the Gospel. Ability to teach that I might teach the Gospel. Musical skills that I might help God's people worship the God of the Gospel. How's, it, how's God developed you? Don't be afraid of using those things He's given you for the Gospel. And what blows my mind is that God even uses uh, our past sins for His purposes. Prior to His conversion, as we've said, Paul was this zealous persecutor of the church, right? But after his conversion, Paul became a a zealous uh, advocate for Christ. His dramatic change, the dramatic change seen in his life, has, has been seen by many as evidence for the reality of Jesus Christ, of the Gospel. In my own life, it was the dramatic conversion of my parents. You can ask, I'm not going to share their sins with you. They, they can do that. You can ask, they, they're here. Raise your hands. No, just kidding. Uh, God used the radical changes that I, at age 13, saw in their lives to draw me to Christ. So Paul, and I believe we, are set apart for the Gospel. And it's the Gospel that Paul now turns. It's to the Gospel he turns. He goes on in verses 2 and 3. So he's introduced himself. Now in verses 2 and 3, Paul introduces his message. His message is, uh, he calls it the gospel of God, which he's set apart for. And our message is the gospel of God, which we've been set apart for. And if we're going to communicate that message, then we need to... We need to live it, we need to be transformed by it, and we need to know it well. And that's what we're going to be doing in the book of Romans. But Paul begins the introduction of his message by stating that, stating that the gospel was promised. Verse 2, Paul, set apart for the gospel of God, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel was planned long before it happened. Know this. When you're sharing the Gospel, when you're telling people about Jesus Christ, about Christianity, know that Jesus Christ is not the founder of a new religion. He's the fulfillment of the oldest religion. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. That's what we spent the last year looking at. From Genesis to to Malachi and then into the New Testament, we saw that that what God prepared and promised in the Old Testament, He fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Adam and Eve that their offspring would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that through Him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to deliver His people from slavery. For on the cross, He delivered us from slavery to sin. Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the, he's the reality of the tabernacle and the temple. For in, in Him, God's presence, in Christ, God's presence, uh, tabernacles, He dwells among His people. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of the priesthood and the sacrificial system. For He became the, the perfect high priest who sacrificed Himself for our sins. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise of an eternal King from the line of David. And there's more in the, in the Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy. If you've read that before. Just kidding. Uh, J. Barton Payne itemizes 127 messianic predictions involving more than 3,000 Bible verses. Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the, he's the promise. The Gospel has been promised. So the first thing Paul says about the Gospel, it's promised in the Old Testament. And second, he says, the Gospel concerns God's Son. The Gospel. That's the center. The focus of the Gospel is God's Son. The Gospel of God which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son. When we share the Gospel, sometimes we're, we're tempted. We get sidetracked. Maybe the person we're talking to is, is, is wanting us to get sidetracked. Asking us all kinds of maybe related, sometimes mostly unrelated questions. All kinds of issues. And we want to defend this and that. But the Gospel is about God's Son. And in verses 3 and 4, Paul introduces us to this Son. And the first thing we, he says is Jesus is the Son of David. In the Gospels, Jesus is often referred to in the, in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus is often referred to as the Son of David. Paul says concerning His Son, concerning God's Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. According to the flesh. Physically, Jesus was born like any other human baby. He became fully human. He became one of us. As Paul writes to the Philippians, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So the Son became human. Specifically, Paul says, a descendant of David. Why is Jesus uh, called the Son of David? David had many other descendants. Jesus wasn't the only uh, descendant even in that day. I think for two reasons. First, to make it clear what we've said, that Jesus was a human being, a man who walked this earth, a physical descendant of David. Therefore, he was, uh, as, a, as fully man, he would be the one who could take our place, who could give his life for us. And second... Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise given to David. You remember that promise when we were in First Kings, First Second, First Kings, I think it was, of an eternal king on your throne. God says to David, "Will reign this eternal king. No, the, the kingdom will not depart from from your line." And that promise was repeated by the prophets. It's really, in many ways, the central promise of the Old Testament. For with the promised eternal king comes the promised eternal kingdom. And in this eternal kingdom, all the promises of God are fulfilled. So wrapped up in this being the descendant of David are all of the promises of God fulfilled in His kingdom. And that's the Gospel of God. That's the good news which we're to proclaim. Just listen to two examples. Promises fulfilled by the Son of David. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, the prophet Jeremiah writes, Behold, the day is coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will 
And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. It's looking forward to to Christ's reign. So the gospel of God is the good news that Jesus, the promised king, has come. And that, that he, the son of David, will rule with righteousness and wisdom and justice. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 says, For for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. So the gospel of God is the good news that the king has come. He's come as a child. For unto us a child is born, a a human, but he will rule and reign on the throne of David. He will rule in an everlasting kingdom filled with wonder and peace and justice and righteousness. In Mark chapter 1 verse 14 we read, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. The same gospel that Paul's writing about. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel of God is that the king, and therefore the kingdom of God, is at hand. And our response, Jesus says, is to repent and believe in the gospel. To turn from our sins and turn to the king. To enter the kingdom, to become his subjects, his servants. To make him the Lord of our lives. So first, the gospel of God is that Jesus is the son of David the eternal King of kings and Lord of lords, but also, clearly, Jesus is the Son of God. In the Gospels, Jesus is referred to as the Son of David, and He's also referred to as the Son of God. And as the title, Son of David, emphasizes Jesus' humanity, the title, Son of God, emphasizes His divinity. Paul says, uh, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus became the Son of David, but He was always the Son of God. That phrase, declared to be the Son of God, may cause us to think that there was a time when Jesus wasn't the Son of God. Okay, at this point we're declaring Him. Before that, He wasn't. But that's not the case. In Colossians 2.9, speaking of, of Christ, Paul says, For in Him the, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. He's always been God. Jesus was and is always 100% God. So when Paul says that He was declared to be the Son of God, he doesn't mean that there was a time when He wasn't the Son of God and then something changed to make Him the Son of God. He means that there was a time on earth when it became clear that Jesus was the Son of God. That word declared could also be translated showed or determined, proved to be. Jesus proved to be the Son of God. It's in some ways like, like, like uh, what we've talked about, what Tom talked about in the sanctity of life, the human child. From conception, from the point of conception, the child is human. If you look at the DNA, it's human DNA. But as he or she grows in the womb, and then finally when they come forth at the time of delivery, or if you can get a clear ultrasound, we can clearly recognize and declare this is a human baby. Jesus has, from eternity past, always had the DNA of God. 
if, if that's a thing. He's always been fully God. But there came a time when he was clearly recognized on earth and declared to be the Son of God. And that time was, Paul says, at the resurrection. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So why is the resurrection so important in declaring Jesus to be the divine Son of God? Because the resurrection, at the resurrection, we need to understand, I don't know, Paul said, without the resurrection, our faith is uh, nothing. Meaningless. Worthless. Because the resurrection validates everything that Jesus said. Everything that Jesus did. It proved that He was sent from God. And that God's Spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit was with Him. Because it's only through the power of God, uh, just so you know, it's only through the power of God that people are raised from the dead. And therefore, when Jesus said things like, during His earthly ministry, when He said, I and the Father are one, and people said, you're crazy. When He said, whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. Really? Who do you think you are? And when He said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Equating himself with the God who spoke to Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am. And when Jesus said, I am the Son of God, the resurrection validated that Jesus was was not some crazy person with a God complex. The resurrection showed that what He said, that He was the Son of God, was true. And therefore, the resurrection declares the truth of the Gospel of God. That Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God. And finally, Paul says, the Gospel declares that Jesus is our Lord and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul concludes this introduction of his message by making sure we understand who he's talking about. He said the Son that He's a servant of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus. Jesus is the Son of David. Jesus is the Son of God. It's Jesus who is the one He serves. Paul's already identified Jesus as His Lord. He says He's a servant of Christ Jesus. But Paul says He is our Lord. He is the Lord of of the believers in Rome, and He's the Lord of all believers throughout history. The Lord, the the ruler, the authority, the leader of our lives. Paul is saying to the church in Rome, we share the same Lord. Jesus is our Lord. We're We're on the same team. He's our King, our Lord. And therefore, we share the same mission. It's His mission. Then in verses 5 and 6, Paul introduces his mission. He's saying, basically, he's our Lord, moving into, this is is his mission. I'm his servant. This is the mission he's given me. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Let's break that down. Paul says that, that he or we have received the grace and apostleship. He's probably referring to the other apostles now as the foundation of the church. They, the apostles, had received grace of God for what purpose? What is Paul's mission? 
It's an interesting thing here. We, I don't think, you know, if you'd have asked me before I started studying this, I might not have, I probably wouldn't have said this. I would have said something. Take the gospel to the nations. But he says, to bring about obedience of faith. To bring about obedience of faith. That's an interesting phrase, obedience of faith. That word obedience is not, is not what we think of first, firsthand when we talk about the gospel, right? We, talk about, we focus on faith and belief and trust in Jesus Christ. But Paul says, don't forget about obedience. Obedience cannot be ignored when, we come, when it comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Obedience is required, but it is an obedience flowing from saving faith. We don't obey to earn our salvation. We obey because we're saved. It's the obedience of faith. Notice how this fits into how Paul's introduced himself, how Paul's introduced his message. Paul said he's a servant of Christ Jesus. Jesus is his master. Obedience to Jesus is what I do. And Paul also makes it clear that the message he proclaims is concerning who? Jesus, our Lord. For those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, He is. He becomes. He's declared. You submit to Him as your Lord. He's to be obeyed in all things, above all others. Again, not to earn what He's already freely given. He freely gives you. And now you come to Him as your Lord and Master. So Paul's mission is to bring about obedience of faith. That is, that in faith people would trust and obey Jesus Christ. As the song says, and I think we're singing it too later. I won't sing it now. That would be a bad thing. Uh, as the song says though, trust and obey for there's no other way. And it goes on. So we know what Paul's mission is. And he also tells us where is his mission? Where is Paul's mission? And he says, it's among all nations. It's not a limited mission. It's to go to the ends of the earth. To all peoples or, or to all people groups. It's a global mission. Which includes, by the way, his mission to Spain. Where Paul, he's, 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 you know, he's priming the pump. I want, I, I, my mission is to go where the gospel has not been declared. For him, in that day, that was Spain. Paul wants the church of Rome to support him. So his, his mission is to all nations. And finally, why is Paul's mission? Or... What is the purpose of Paul's mission? Why does he do what he does? He says, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. The purpose of Paul's mission is for the sake of his, capital H, his name, the name of God, the name of Jesus Christ. That word name means his reputation or his honor. The purpose of Paul's mission to bring uh, about obedience of faith, that people would trust and obey in the Lord Jesus Christ, is for the glory of God. That Jesus would be honored and glorified as He deserves among the nations. Like the first song we sing, the itch, uh, you should be the praise of every tongue. That's Paul's mission. That's his purpose. That's why he's doing what he does. That God would be honored and glorified among the nations. That for His glory, for God's glory, all peoples will trust and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's mission. And that continues, you know, that continues to be our mission as well. There are still places, many places, many peoples that aren't declaring the praise, that aren't honoring, 
the name of Jesus Christ. We are to glorify God in our lives by proclaiming the message of the Gospel that brings about this obedience of faith among the nations. And the thing I want to leave us with today is this. So this is Paul's introduction. He's, he said, this is who I am. This is my message. This is my mission. And you might think, well, why is he talking so much about himself? But if, you, if, you've, if you've been with us, if you've watched, he's making it clear to the church in Rome that it's not about him. It's about God. That God is, is really the star of his show. That God is in control of his life and ministry. He serves Christ. God called him to be an apostle. And God set him apart, even from his mother's womb, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. His message is not about himself. His message is about the Son of David, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It was promised. It's, it was promised from the Holy Scriptures, and now it's proclaimed in Christ. And his mission that all peoples and all nations might trust and obey the Lord Jesus is not for his glory, it's for the glory of God. So Paul was the, uh, I don't know if it's arguably or not, but Paul was the greatest missionary of all time, the author of most of the New Testament, the author of the greatest letter ever written, Romans, which we're studying. But Paul takes no credit for who he is or what he does. He gives the glory to God. And no matter how successful in life and ministry we are, we have to do the same. For we too are, are, are servants of Christ called to belong to Christ, set apart by God, given the same message, the Gospel, given the same mission to bring about obedience of faith that people might trust and obey among all nations, given the same purpose to bring glory to God. And that's just the introduction. I'm just overwhelmed sometimes by, by, by what, what's ahead of us as we continue our, our journey through Romans, Paul will expand upon each and everything we've seen today. And I pray that we as individuals, I pray that we as a church will meet God in this book, that we'll grow in our love for God, that we might work, that He might work, that we might allow Him to work in and through our lives for His glory. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank You for, for this amazing letter written uh, long ago, but still so, so, so applicable to us this day. You're amazing, God, how you do that. And I pray for us here. I pray that we would trust in your gospel, that we would give our lives to you, that you would be, we would be your servants, you would be our Lord. That we would know the message you've given us, the message of the gospel, and it will, would impact our lives, Father. That we would trust in you, Lord, and that we would take that gospel to the ends of the earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.